All right, so we are going to conclude Nehemiah. We are now on week 15. I can't believe how long this has taken us to get through a very small book of the Bible. And so I, you know, kind of coming to the end of it here, I'm thinking, what was the purpose of this? Because this whole thing is about building a wall. And we talked, you know, we spent quite a long time, 10 weeks, I'm talking about the gates, you know, the gates, each one symbolic of the Christian life, symbolic of the church life as well. And we talked about that. But beyond the symbolism of it, you know, God didn't just do that for the symbolism. They had a purpose for building this wall. And Nehemiah uh, was writing the story of the physical wall being built. And I don't know whether or not the Holy Spirit inspired him enough that he knew he was also writing about a symbolic uh, kind of a thing. I, I don't know. But he certainly was telling the story of what it took to build, rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Why? And if we look at the very beginning of uh, Nehemiah, we see three kind of categories. He gives a bunch of little reasons as he's talking to people, but we see three categories uh, of it. First of all is to redeem, and that's uh, you know, to, to bring the people back to God, basically. He wants to bring them back, and uh, also to remove uh, reproach. He talks about that a lot. That's shame. Reproach is shame. So you're ashamed, we're going to remove that. Redeem is actually to bring back an, an identity. They lost their identity. They, they had been conquered and taken off to Persia. You know, a lot of them, they were, they, they'd come back to Jerusalem, some of them, but they had no identity they, because they had no place to gather. And the last thing is to bring, bring peace or safety. You know, because there were no walls around the city, the city wasn't even really there. I, I think you need to understand what it was like in those days to have a city with no wall. Every every you know, nomad tribe coming through that had swords, you're kind of at the mercy of. And uh, that actually happened to them. They, they tried to rebuild the walls and, and the neighboring uh, places would rise up and conquer them and steal everything. And so uh, this was a problem that they had. And um, you know, almost like picture, you, know, you invite someone to your house. Hey, I just got a new house, come visit me. And you go over, they come over and, and there's no walls in your house. You know, picture that. And they're kind of, what's this? And you know, What's this paint on the ground? Well, that's my living room, you know, here. It's, this is kind of where I am. And, and uh, how far is your house extend? Kind of over that way somewhat. You know, there's no walls. There's no, you know, and of course the wind blows and it gets cold and it's a little bit cold here. Well, you can hide in that, that hole there and you'll be fine. You know, it's like, it's not really a house. And, and if, if you had a house like that, you'd kind of be ashamed to have guests come over. And that's what, that's what Nehemiah was talking about. Our city is a reproach. It's, it's shameful for us. And so uh, we... We had to go back and do this. And his heart was broken over this. I mean, if you remember in the first book of, of Nehemiah, his heart, I mean, he just starts crying and weeping about realizing how bad it is for the Jews who return to Jerusalem and they have nothing there. And so uh, finally, after all these weeks we've spent with Nehemiah, uh, we finally get to the conclusion of Nehemiah. And I'm thinking, okay, this ought to be good, right? Because we've spent a lot of time on this. We need a nice big conclusion. And I'm like, praying about it and I don't really seem to find it and I'm like God I don't know what I'm going to do I need a conclusion for the series and I don't really have it and I was like looking online for different things and this idea came up this mat that you would put on the floor and would have different conclusions written on it that you could jump to that is the worst idea I've ever heard in my life Tom yes yes it's horrible this idea yeah, so you could jump to conclusions. We could do that. But instead, uh, I'm going to let Nehemiah conclude it for us because I think he actually does a good job with it. Uh, but if you 
aren't reading carefully, I think you'll miss the conclusion here. So I'm going to do something I hardly ever do. I usually, as you know, kind of read a scripture and kibitz on it a little bit. That's Yiddish for those of you uh, who don't speak Jewish. Uh, but um, I kind of talk about it as we go. Uh, this time I'm going to diff- I'm just going to read it as Nehemiah wrote it and then break it down afterwards. So here's the very end of Nehemiah, and here's how he describes it. He says, all the people gathered around as one man the square, which was in front of the water gate, and asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Now, just real quick, there's another book of the Bible, which we're not going into yet, called Ezra, where he writes his version of this. Uh, he actually came to restore the temple, not the wall. So Ezra and Nehemiah worked together. Ezra was a priest. And so they have Ezra come, and Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding, and remember the law is what they call the books that Moses wrote, especially the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And on the first day of the seventh month, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate. That's twice now, by the way, Nehemiah said, I'm convincing, I know, but I, uh, I can't help myself. That's twice now, just pointing that out, that he's mentioned where this is. From early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. See? Wooden podium is made for the purpose. Biblical. Okay. Um, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people. And when he opened it up, all the people stood up. I was actually in a church that did that. So when he read from the word of it, everybody stand up. I'm not going to do that. I was, it, was, it was awkward to me because I, when I was a kid, I always stood to sing. Not to, and I'm convincing again. I'm sorry. Uh, then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, also biblical. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is from reading the law, okay? So they read from the book from the law of God, explaining it to give sense so they understood the reading. That's a very key point there. They didn't just read it. These people would explain it as well. So they said, this is why it, why it matters. And then Nehemiah, who was the governor, satrap is actually the word here. It was, it, was a, it was a Persian designate for the governor. But basically, the king put him in charge. Uh, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. So they heard these books probably for the first time in their lives, and they started crying. That was an interesting reaction to Scripture. And then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him as nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. We want a big feast. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's a famous verse. Maybe you sung it in a psalm, right? So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. They keep telling them, stop, stop your crying. This isn't a time for crying. All the people went away to eat, to drink, and to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. That's not just what the Levites told them, but they were understanding the first five books of the Bible and understood what it all meant. And then on the second day, The heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra, the scribe or the priest, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. So he was just taking the heads of the household, he was teaching them deeper, right? They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses. And then on the second, that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they're in this feast. 
and booths. It's just kind of these, you know, it's kind of a tent, but it just has leaves put on top of it. So it's kind of a, a shelterish like thing for the sun, but that's all. It's not like they're going to start a vendor thing. They're going to set up booths and sell things. It's not that kind of a booth. But it is a booth. It's basically a tent with palm leaves on it, right? And this was something that the, the law had prescribed. It says, when you do this feast, which is where they are, do that. And so they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all the cities and all Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills, bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And then the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them while they're doing this feast. They live outside, right, because they want to be closer to God. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua to that day. That's a very, very long time by the way. If you remember, Joshua took, a, took them into the promised land. They did this in his day, but after Joshua died, this practice ceased. And so they hadn't done it. To the, and there was great rejoicing, because they're kind of all getting, getting it there. And he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, for seven days, every day. They gathered together, and they got the book, the first five books of the Bible read to them. And they celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance because they brought it to an end. Okay, so I almost made it through without kibitzing. Now we've got to talk about this. This was interesting to me because I'm reading this. In the, and first of all, the people's reaction I thought was interesting because I'm, you know, I love you all, but I'm pretty sure if I could up and start reading the first five books of the Bible, you wouldn't all weep. Unless you thought I'm stuck here, you can't go home, I'm going to miss lunch, maybe then you'd weep. But, I don't, you know, that's not why they're weeping. They're weeping because they've never seen us before. And, and they did not know. They were a generation who had lived and been born in captivity. And so when they started hearing about the promises, they heard about maybe Moses and, and everything for the first time. And they heard about all the promises made. And they understood for the first time, we're in captivity, not because God failed us, but because we failed God. And they understood that God tried very, very hard to keep all this from happening. And they brought it on themselves. But he always had a plan to bring them back. And he's brought him back. And he says, if you will make me your God, I, you'll be my people again. And that's actually the promise that Nehemiah claims at the very beginning of the book. I'm going to claim this promise before you, Lord. You said if we will make you our God again, you will bring us back and you'll gather the people. And he claimed that promise and now it's come true. And this is what they're realizing. They just weep. Now, it might seem strange to you to weep at the scriptures. It used to be strange to me. But it's not anymore. I do it all the time now. It's really weird uh, how that works. But, I mean, I, there are moments, I don't know if you guys catch these or not, but there are moments when I'll turn to read something and my voice catches. Because there's, there's some scripture on the screen that just hits me, and I don't even know why. It's not like I don't know it's coming. You know, I, mean, I make these slides. So, I mean, I know it's there. I've read it before. But sometimes I just go look at it, and the, and the Word of God just, like, touches you somehow, and it really can make you cry. And, and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting reaction. But here's the other thing. I started kind of get a sense, I think, of the conclusion of all this. And I'm, I have it in mind, and I'm reading through this. But doggone it, Nehemiah says, like three or four times, they gathered at the water gate. And I'm like, that's the wrong gate. That, that can't be right, you know. And I'm praying about that. I said, God, I, I, I just don't think that I got this right. I must be off. Because I'm thinking that this whole thing is really about your word. This whole thing is really about the word of the Lord. This, 
the whole book of Nehemiah is really about that. But it can't be right because they're at the water gate and they should be at the old gate. Because if you guys remember, those of you who are here, when we did our journey through the gates of Nehemiah, uh, the old gate, which would be the third gate we ran into, the old gate was the book of the law, the gate of the law. That's where the people came to have law administered. And that's where I would think that if I'm going to read the law to the people, I'd go and do it. I would go to the old gate and read it there. makes more sense. What was the water gate? I'm not going to ask you all. I know we've all slept since then. Let me remind you. The water gate was the gate that we come to when we're ready to immerse ourselves in Jesus. It would be symbolic of baptism, immersion in baptism. But there's more than that. Jesus talks about himself being the living water. And so although we hear the shepherds call the sheep gate, and we have this journey with them through the other gates, it isn't until we get to the water gate, which you may remember comes after the wilderness, we, we get to the water gate and we immerse ourselves in Jesus that he actually brings us into the, 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 the close communion with Heavenly Father. The next gate will be the fountain gate where we get the Holy Spirit. So the water gate is Jesus, right? And so I was, uh, I was praying about it. I said, God, I must be wrong because this should have been at the old gate. I just feel like God said, why? I said, because the old gate's where the law comes. He says, yes. And the law has two purposes. If you remember when we went to there, the two-person law is, first of all, to show you that you, you have fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the purpose of the law. It's also to protect us from making future mistakes. But the law condemns us because the law shows us our imperfections. He says, that's not what I want to do with the people here. I bring them to Jesus' gate. And then he took me to this verse. And you know this verse. Uh, this starts off every Christmas just about, right? In, and this is going to be three verses in, in John, right? John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know that, right? In him was life, and the life was a light for men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's the Word? Jesus, right? Jesus is the Word. And we beheld his glory, and the glory as the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. And then jumping down, later on, John 3, 17, Jesus says this, God did not send his word into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so that's why they came to the water gate, because the purpose of the law here wasn't to condemn them. It was to save them. Because he's exactly where he is supposed to be. The, so the other thing that was interesting to me is the people didn't go home. I mean, they didn't tell the people to stay. The people wouldn't leave. And that's a very interesting thing to me as well, because I, I, I sat on that one for a little while. So that's an interesting reaction. They read the law to them, and it was there to bring them to him, right? It was, it was not to condemn him, but to save them. And they just like, I don't want to leave here. I just don't want to leave. And I thought, that's, that's weird. And then it occurred to me, we experienced that on a much smaller level the day we opened Spirit Chapel. And I'm just curious, um, other than my family, who was here the very first day Spirit Chapel opened? Yeah, okay, so I can tell you anything I want, no one will know. <laughs> so I can make all this up. Uh, no, but, but uh, it's interesting because the very first day we opened Spirit Chapel, uh, we, we really were rushing because, um, without going into all the details, we were supposed to get this building a month ahead of time. We had our, we had our plan, we had our date. You know, we already were starting to announce the date. And we, got, we, got the pla- we were supposed to get the place a month ahead of time, so we had a month to set up the church. We got it the weekend before we opened the church. It's like, oh boy, you know. 
So we had one week to do everything. And I mean, we had come in and there, nothing was here. I mean, it was, um, they, had the, they had the carpet down, that was it. And we had uh, this great big vision for this multimedia church. And we had a bunch of stuff in boxes. <laughs> and we had no idea how to even use it, let alone set it up. And so we had these boxes everywhere. And you know, we didn't have environmentals. We didn't have a lot of things. But the one project we have is the main project. We got that one put up. And uh, Stas and Dick hung this. So I, I mean, uh, Stas and no, who helped you with that? I can't remember now. Dick, you came later. Jim, Jim, yeah, Jim McCaffrey. They hung this, and so we had that, and we had that. Uh, unfortunately, when we went to use that, it wouldn't work. <laughs> and so we had this multimedia church uh, all set up, and I was going to do my first week. I was going to use PowerPoint because it's all I knew. I brought my computer from home. We set it up, and it wouldn't project anything. And I go, oh, boy, that's a problem, right? So this is like the night before, Saturday night, is when we finally got around to that. We were so busy doing everything else. We didn't have lights. We had pews back then. Some of you may remember the pews because uh, they were donated to us. Uh, so, you know, we didn't have any, any environmentals at all. Those were in boxes. And so uh, we didn't have the pulpit then. It was like really bare here the first week. And I thought, oh, you have to have live music. So I brought my guitar, and I thought, I'll leave some music with guitar. That'll be great. And so, but I'm sitting there uh, like around 9 or 10 o'clock, and I said, uh, Stas, you got to get that working. I got to go home and prepare a sermon yet. You know, I got to preach tomorrow, and I don't have anything done. So I left Stas and Jim to try to get that to work, and I went home, and I'm working, and around midnight or so, he comes home and says, it's, it's just not working. It was got to work. I mean, you know, I can't show any slides. What am I supposed to do, shadow puppets? I mean, I don't know how to do this. And so we came back down here that night, and Stas and I were working uh, here, and we were, um, <clears throat> it was, you know, as you know, they, they changed the clock on the night we opened. And that's a little tradition that they continue on for us to this day. You always know our anniversary because it's the night that the clocks get turned back. But um, Stas had a friend send him a message, and he sent a reply back. And the reply reached the friend an hour before he, his friend sent his message because we were here during the times change. That's how late we were here. Uh, and we were trying. We couldn't get it to work, so finally we dug out another projector and that would work, and we stood it here on a table, and I sat there, and it was there. My computer was there. I ran the whole thing, you know, from a chair right there. It was really bad. But before we got to there, you know, we went home. And, and about 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, Stas went to bed, and I'm sitting in the car, and I am angry, you know, because I just felt God has really let me down. Because we were working very hard to open his church, and I, I mean, I was in, I was in the, um, the car alone, and I got, <laughs> I got angry. And m- in my prayers, I mean, I, the, the fact that God has not struck me dead during my prayers just proved he has mercy, because I get mad sometimes. And I said, you know, God, anytime you want to step in and help us with what we're doing here, you feel free. You feel free to step in any time. And I know, you know, that we have problems. I know we have issues. But you know what? I also know that whatever's wrong with that projector, you could have fixed it. And if that projector came in defective, you could have sent one that wasn't defective. You know, you have the power to stop some of the stuff that's going on. And, and I don't understand why you're not stepping in. You know, we're trying to do a church that we believe you gave us a vision to start. And it seems like, you know, you're not helping. And uh, everything seems to be going wrong. And everybody's mad at each other. Boy, the spirit that was here Saturday night was not the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you that. Everybody's yelling at each other and, and throwing things at each other. And so I said, this is, this is wrong on every level. I'm supposed to preach tomorrow. I don't even know how. And I just go off in this long, long tirade, you know. And when it's all done, uh, God says, uh, you're worried about the wrong thing. I said, oh, really? I don't have a way to show my slides tomorrow. I'd like to know what I'm supposed to be worried about tomorrow. And God said, you should be worried that I'm not going to show up. 
and I didn't think that was an option. <laughs> I said, whoa, 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 it really shook me. What do you mean you're not going to show up? I, that, you can do that? You can just not show up? I didn't think that was possible. And I felt God was saying, yeah. He says, uh, here's the thing you need to f- really get in you right now is um, if I don't show up tomorrow, then that projector is running in vain. And if I do show up tomorrow, whether you have a projector or not, it doesn't even matter. You're worried about all the wrong things. And you have been all week long. And we didn't pray over the plate. We didn't, you know, all this stuff we should have been doing, you know, we hadn't done any of it because we're so busy trying to get prepared with what we had. And uh, I really felt very convicted. And I said, what do I need to do? Because I have to have you there tomorrow. I mean, you've got to show up. I'm exhausted. You've got to be there. And he said, you need to repent. And so I started repenting. And he says, it's not to me. You need to repent to everybody you were driving too hard this week to get stuff done. And chief of all those was my wife, who had already gone home angry with me, and I knew that, you know. So I <coughs> went up to bed, and she was, she was awake. I knew it because I could tell by her breathing, but she wasn't saying anything to me, you know that? <coughs> She's in that wife position on the bed where she turned away from me, you know. And so I go, and I lay down on my little, little, little tight eight inches on the end of that bed because that's all I knew I had. The rest of it was very cold, that bed, very cold. <coughs> and I knew she's still mad at me, and so I thought, well, I'm, I, won't, I won't try to do this now. I'll do it in the morning. So in the morning, she got up before me, and, you know, she walked into uh, the closet and shut the door, you know, to get ready. And that's how I knew she was really mad at me. She didn't want to talk to me. And so I go, and I open the closet door, and I said, I got something to say to you. And she turned it on, what? <laughs> you know? And I said, I just want to say I'm sorry. You know, I'm really, really sorry. I, I kind of was looking at this whole thing the wrong way, and God convicted me, and, and I'm, I'm really sorry. And she looks at me, she says, you said the one thing that got me to go to church today. Because I was not going. I was, you go yourself. I'm not going. And so, uh, you know, we, we came, and I would eventually apologize to everybody who was working with me. Um, and so we, we came here, and uh, compared to where we are now, the service was not very good. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. And we had this thing here, and I was playing my guitar. We sang three songs that you know because we sing them every year. Uh, and, you know, I had my PowerPoint presentation with stuttering video and all this stuff, you know. Uh, and I sat over there on a stool then. That's all I had, and, you know. And, and when it was all over, I said, okay, bow our heads to pray. We, this is our first service. We didn't really know what we were doing. And so we prayed, every, you know, everybody bowed their head. And, and then I said amen and looked up, and everybody's looking at me, and I'm looking at them. And I'm like, go home. You know, we're, we're done. It was just like, oh, we're done. You know, it was like there was no, you know, no final song. There was no benediction. There wasn't any of that. Just, just go, you go home. Uh, and everybody, oh, oh. And they, everybody's looked at their watch like, wow, that was fast. You know, but last time I think those words were ever said in Spirit Chapel. But, um, you know, about that. and so they all get up and it's like, you know, we started at 10, we're over before 11. Uh, everybody was shocked. You know, we had no children's program then, but every, so everybody's here, you know. We had 24 people or something. And um, no one left. I mean, everybody got up and talked and stayed, and we talked and stayed, and I think we got, finally got to lunch at around 1, and I thought, well, that was weird. You know, I finished early, and everybody said, that's great, and then no one left. I might as well kept preaching, you know, and if you wonder why I preached so long, that's why. You know, it's, it's like, you're going to stay anyway, and so the, for the first month of Spirit Chapel or so, that's how it was. No one got out of here before 12.30, 1 o'clock. Everybody's kind of hung around, and I think that's because where the Spirit of the Lord is, you don't want to leave. And especially that first day, someone asked me, how'd it go, how'd it go, how'd it go? And the only word I could get was it was really kind of special time. And it wasn't that we were great here, we were, but I really believe God's spirit showed up in a very gentle and kind way. It was just the spirit was here, and it was, 
it was fun to be here. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. It just felt great to be here. And I believe that's the Holy Spirit showed up. And I, I think that's the spirit the Lord wants to have, where you just drawn and you don't want to leave. And I know that now we have a youth program. We got to get kids and everybody kind of, you know, it's changed a little bit since that early day. But I still think that the ultimate church experience shouldn't have anything to do with the music, the sermon. It's just the spirit that comes. And if it's really there like that, I think that touches you in a way that's far deeper than anything I can say or anything that we can sing. It's just really the whole, the Holy Spirit changes everything. So anyway, so that's, that's what I picture was going on when they're reading is that people are just hearing this and the spirit comes, you know, the spirit's anointing the words and the spirit shows up and the people are like, let's not leave. Let's just stay here. You know, when, if you remember when the Mount Transfiguration happens, you know, and Peter's there and, and, and Jesus has a, has a little conference call, you know, with, with uh, Elijah and Moses, they're all in this thing. And what, is, what does Peter say? This is great. Let's build something here and never leave. This is just amazing. I don't want ever this to ever end, which is better than any meeting I've ever been in because I always want those to end fast. But this is different, right? This was the Holy Spirit was there. Was, let's just stay here. Let's just build something. I'll build a temple for each. I personally will build a temple for each of you. Let's just stay here. And there is something about that. The Holy Spirit should be drawing us and, and wanting us to stay. So anyway, getting back to what were the three things that Nehemiah was trying to accomplish. Well, the first thing, of course, is removing reproach, removing condemnation. How did that happen? The wall? No. That's not what removes the condemnation. It's the word of the Lord that removes the condemnation. We see this in Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why God brought them to the water gate. Because that's where Jesus' gate is, right? Bring him to Jesus. Because when you come to Jesus, there's no more condemnation. I've said this a lot of times. I'll continue to say this. The Holy Spirit never condemns. It convicts, but that's different than condemning. The Holy Spirit will never condemn you. If you're hearing condemnation in your head, voices telling you you're no good, or you're just thinking these thoughts, I'm no good, I'll never be, that's not coming from God. That's condemnation. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit says something. Come on, you can do better than this. Come on, we can do. That's conviction. We can do better than this. Come on, let's do the better. Calling you onward to be better. That's conviction, and it's always one one thing at a time. The Holy Spirit works on one thing at a time with you. You know why? Because He's infinite. He has all the time in the world, so He never rushes. The Holy Spirit's infinite, and so Holy Spirit will convict you. Come on, you shouldn't be doing that. You know better than that. I, I know you're better than that, right? Remember who you are. You know you shouldn't be losing your temper like that. Come on, we can do better. That's conviction. Condemnation is, see, you're losing your temper. You're not a Christian. Boy, if people knew what you're just thinking right now, oh my goodness, you're going to go straight to hell. Thing that's like that. That's condemnation, and that's not coming from the Holy Spirit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the other thing, of course, that we're supposed to do is restore an identity. They lost their identity. They didn't know who they were anymore. They were just people who came back. They were vagabonds. They were kind of homeless people who came back to Jerusalem, and they were still homeless because there was really nothing there. So we need to restore the identity of the people. Well, again, Scripture is what does that because we see this in 1 John. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. That's who you are. That's that second song we sang, right? This comes right out of it. You're, you're a child of the one true king. That's who you are. And a lot of times the devil will try to convince you you're not, but you are. And that's why we can accomplish what God puts before us. That's why we can change. That's why it's not a dead-end street, because we're child of God. 
That's why. He says, the world world doesn't know us. It didn't even know him. Beloved, we now are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what that means. You know, it's like we don't know exactly what it's going to be like. We know some of it, but we don't know exactly what it's like. But when he's revealed, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, we saw Jesus in part. We didn't see him in all of his glory. We're going to see that. It's going to be really amazing to us. You know, John's writing this. He said, it was the most amazing thing in my life to be near Jesus. And this is going to be greater yet when we see him in heaven. It's going to be revealed as a much higher thing. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What he's saying is God will make you pure. That's who you are. You're a child of God that Jesus will make pure. Don't let the devil tell you you're not. Because God says you are. And I've said this before. It doesn't matter who, who your parents say you are or who the world says you are or who you think you are. The only thing that matters is who God says you are. He says, you're my child. That's who you are. And I'll make you pure. And God doesn't lie. So that, that's all that matters. But if you want to talk about getting your identity, that's a good identity to have. Who are you? <laughs> I'm the child of the king. That's who I am. And I can accomplish all things because Christ is in me. I know who I am. You're not going to lie to me, devil. I know who I am. And I know who you are, and you're a liar. So just shut up, right? And the third thing is provide peace. How do we get peace? Boy, I, you know, I have had so many people uh, talk to me, not about peace, usually about the other side of that fear. I'm afraid. This is fearful times we live in, isn't it? I mean, I can't remember the country so divided as it is right now. People are just angry at each other. You know, television shows where people just yell at each other. It's just amazing to me. It's fearful times, and, and it's like, oh, how do you get peace in the midst of all of that? You know, how do you get that? Well, the answer is you come back to the Bible. And this is Paul writing in Philippians. He says, look, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And a word there for think is actually better translated meditate. In other words, you have a choice to think about whatever you want. You know that? You know, things are happening. You have a choice. He says, here's where your meditation should be. Hey, thoughts hit. You know, we all have them, you know. I'm standing in line at Walmart. Clearly says 12 items or less. That person's got 43 because I counted them in the time it took them to ring them up, right? I could sit there and dwell on that. Not that I would, but I could, you know. Or I could think of the good things, like I'm almost done, I'm almost out. <laughs> There's anything excellent or worthy of praise, uh, you know, whatever. Whatever you know, we can do, m- my wife says she starts praying for people. That's honorable and holy. I'm just trying not to curse them. I'm, I have my own little battle, you know. But, you know, however, but you think of what's excellent, what's, pu- what's pure. If you start choosing to think about what is pure and what is holy and what is excellent and commendable, Instead of dwelling on what is not, your life will change. It will. It will. And it's really, really important to do that. You have to kind of get that set in your mind. Because it's the things that we focus on and learn while our feet are on the ground that will help you when you're hanging over the edge. You have to have this embedded in your practice. You have to have it before you get into the bad situation. You have to take your time to get this set before you head out into the bad situation. Because bad situations hit us all. So ahead of time, you have to have this prepped. You're not going to be able to do it. In the middle of your angst, it's very hard to think good thoughts. 
You have to program yourself. That's why you need to read the Bible. And he goes on, he says this. He says, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, here's the kind of peace you're going to have. The kind of peace that you go, I don't even understand it, but I'm fine. I'm fine. Sam Shoemaker, guy, uh, actual Lutheran priest who uh, did a lot of work with Alcoholics Anonymous, lived in McKeesport. Uh, people would ask him how he, how he was. And he would say, you know what? I'm okay where it counts. You know, just focus on what matters, right? If you have that, you have a peace that passes understanding. Where you're looking at the, you're looking at the insanity around you and thinking, I should be upset right now, but I'm not. I can't even understand it. That's the peace that passes understanding. That's the word. Every one of those things, removing condemnation, restoring identity, and bringing you peace, it's all about the word of the Lord, which is why he brought them here. He brought them to a place where God's people can gather for what? To hear his word. That was it. This whole thing was to build walls around a spot where they could come and listen to God's word. Some of them for the first time in their lives have never heard it before. And it changed them, right? It made them weep. It made them laugh. It was just like it changed them. All of a sudden, their life was different. Now, their house is the same house they left when they came into the square. It may have had, you know, broken shutters. It may have had problems because this is all reclamation projects, right? They found homes to recover and stuff. And boy, it doesn't look so good. Okay, same house. They leave that house. They hear God's word. And they go back and like, everything's fine. Why? Because of God's word. This was all about, always about, creating a place where people could gather and hearing God's word. That's the whole book of Nehemiah is about. Because when you hear God's word truly openly and hear it, it changes you. That's when you know your identity. And that's when you find peace. And that's actually what we've been talking about for 15 months now. I want to point this out. We have been talking about Nehemiah for longer than it took them to build the darn wall. They built it in 52 days. We've been talking about it for longer. Because right? it just takes that long to explain everything going on. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is they had a place that they could gather and hear God's word, and it changed their lives. It brought them peace. It gave them identity. And it removed the shame. And that's exactly what God wants from us. Would you all please pray with me?